and this morning, I want to ask a, a question, and, and in one sense, this is going to be a very basic sermon. Uh, in another sense, uh, it's something that I think is very important to everyone in here. Uh, whether or not you're struggling with this issue, you are going to come across people that do struggle with this issue, and so if you don't need it for yourself, it is very important that you understand the things that we're going to talk about today so that you can help others along their own path. Now, uh, I don't have uh, slides today as a burden sermon. uh, One of the the functional uses of this is that I don't have to put as much time into writing out my thoughts. Uh, These thoughts are significantly more uh, just out of my mind and my heart, so I don't have slides put together. That takes a lot of time uh, on a normal week to be able to do that. Uh, so with that being said, I'm not going to have the verses up on the screen. Um, I, I, I point up, I guess uh, you can't see the screen, but normally they're in that corner of the screen anyway if you've watched the YouTube or Sermon Audio videos. Uh, so I'm not going to have the, the, the slides up there, but I do want you to be able to reference some of these scriptures. So I haven't had to say this in some years now since I kind of went to my standard format. But in the window wells of the church, uh, there are many Bibles. And if you want to follow along and you don't have a Bible, please grab one of those. If you have your Bible, you'll want to follow along with me to various passages of scripture. I'd like for you to see these so that you can orient yourself rightly to these truths. Again, if not for yourself, but uh, if not for yourself, then so that you can actually help walk someone else through this idea. And the question that I want to answer today, and many of you have heard me talk about this in various other formats, I've just never really laid it out in a preaching format, is how do I know that I am saved? How do I know that I am born again and I am on my way to heaven? And this isn't necessarily a gospel message. This is a fruit message or an evidence message. How can I know that I'm saved? And the reason why this was on my heart, I was uh, under some preaching or listening to some preaching not too long ago. And and the evangelist, uh, it it was a good message that he preached, but I was somewhat grieved by the way that he presented the idea of assurance of salvation or the idea of salvation itself. I was listening, and he told God's people, do you have a moment in time that you can remember accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior? Can you confidently say that there was a moment in time when you remember placing your faith in Jesus Christ? And that, that standard troubles me a little bit. I understand why that standard is there. Can you confidently say that there's a moment in time? Can you remember the time when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Not just some sort of uh, uh, ambiguous idea of, well, I think so, or I hope so, or, or whatever it might be. But can you remember a time? However, that being said... I don't like that standard. And the reason why is because, with many of you sitting here this morning, you don't know the exact time that you were saved. You don't have a, a necessarily a lightning strike moment when you heard the gospel, you recognized what the gospel said, and you fell on your knees and you accepted Christ as your Savior in the typical format and, and directly called upon the name of the Lord. For many of you, you're second, you're third generation Christians. And second and third, fourth generation Christians particularly struggle with this idea because they walked through those years and and at some point uh, they committed themselves to those truths. And maybe you went to mom and dad or maybe you were sitting in in some sort of evangelistic meeting and and, and the pastor, the evangelist, mom and dad uh, led you through the gospel and, and you can still think back to a point or maybe not. 
And to be quite honest, it's somewhat troubling to me as a rule. The idea of me asking you, can you remember a time when? And the reason why is because our memories are notoriously unreliable, aren't they? I mean, we can read in the newspaper and uh, you can see interactions where people will take a memory, whether that's a bad memory, and they will completely blot out bad things and just remember the good things, or, or they will impose bad things upon a memory that, that were not there as they reinterpret the circumstances or the situation according to um, modern ideas or whatever it might be. Our memories are totally unreliable, notoriously unreliable. I mentioned this not, not too long ago. It may have been several months ago now. But uh, there, are, there are times in my life that are completely gone. I uh, collapsed a couple of years ago while I was out on that jog. And, and, and there are Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. There, there's five days of my life that are completely non-existent in my head. And then the times before that are, are quite fuzzy. And even some of the times after that are quite fuzzy. And so if I'm relying upon my memory to be the, the idea of assurance, well, that, that's not a lot of assurance, is it? What about a date in my Bible? I can look back to a date and say, aha, I remember writing that date on the day that I got saved. I must be saved because I wrote a date in my Bible. Really? Is that it? You must be saved because you wrote a date in your Bible? I have a certificate on my wall, Pastor, and that certificate on the wall is my salvation date or, or, or my baptism date, and, and, and that's, that's your assurance. Your assurance is that you have a certificate on the wall. You don't feel it. You don't have any confidence in it. But when you look at that wall, you say, I must be saved because there's a piece of paper on the wall with my name on it. Or maybe it's just the assurance of those that I trust in life. So a child comes up to mom and dad and says, mom and dad, I'm not sure I'm saved. And dad says, of course you are. I remember. Of course you are. This is what happened one time. Don't you remember? Well, yeah, I guess I sort of do, or maybe I don't, or maybe I don't, but then Dad tells me enough that I think I do, and oh, yeah, I do. But that's it? That's all we have? Is there something more? Now, now don't, don't get me wrong. A memory of a point when you accepted Christ as your Savior, having a point when you accepted Christ as your Savior, good things. A date in your Bible, just fine. Certificate on your wall, Great. The agreement of those in your life, uh, of what they have seen, wonderful. But is that enough? Is that really what I should hang my eternity on? And I say no. I think the Bible says no. These things are blessings if you have them, but the fact of the matter is none of them really matter as it relates to whether or not you can know that you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Because while there most certainly was a moment when you were saved, salvation is not simply something you enter into. Salvation is something that you live in. May I say that again? There was a moment when you were saved, but salvation is not something that you only enter into. Salvation is something that you live in. You live in it every day of your life, which means if you have it, you should know it. You can know it and you can know it every day. You don't have to rely upon a memory. You don't have to rely upon a past action. You can know today because of where you are today, because of what's happening in your life today, that you are saved. And that's what I want to walk through today. 
I want to walk through the evidences that the scriptures give as it relates to how a person knows that they are saved. And there are, in fact, five evidences that I regularly identify in the scriptures as it relates to how it is that a person can know at any given moment of their lives that they are saved. Things that they can look to in their lives in that moment that will give them assurance that they are saved. And as I say that, let me just give one more caveat. And the caveat is this. When we see these things in our lives, they are evidences that the Holy Spirit of God indwells us and is working through us. But let me say that just that, that, that in the same way that seeing them is evidence or is proof of being saved, as a general rule, the absence of them is not necessarily proof that you are not saved. Okay? So seeing these evidences in your life is generally proof that you have the Holy Spirit of God within you and thus you are sealed until the day of redemption and you are born again and you're going to heaven. You're saved. But not seeing these evidences in your life as a general rule, we'll talk about one that's, that's, that, 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 that will be there regardless, but not seeing these things in your life does not necessarily mean you aren't saved. Why is that? Well, because the Bible does not present that these manifestations of the Spirit of God in the life of a person, in the life of a believer, are, are always going to be there if you've accepted Christ as your Savior. Much to the contrary, Jesus teaches in John 15, and he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it, bring, that it may bring forth more fruit. He says, now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. So Jesus said that there is a state of being clean through the word which, that which we have believed that he, spoke, that, he, that he spake unto us. And then Jesus also said that there is a process after being cleansed from our sin of abiding. And if we are abiding in Christ, then we are attached to the vine. And when we are attached to the vine, we bring forth fruit. But if we do not attach ourselves to the vine in any given day, if we, as the scriptures call it, quench the Holy Ghost or grieve the Holy Ghost, if we walk in carnality rather than spirituality, then even though we are a believer and we are sealed with that Holy Spirit because we've quenched him, because we've grieved him, we are not abiding in Christ. We are not abiding. We are not walking in the Spirit. And by not walking in the Spirit, we are not going to see the evidences in our lives. And for many people who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, but they are struggling on a day-in and day-out basis of whether or not they are saved, this is one of the major reasons why. It's because you're living carnally. And because you're living carnally, you're not seeing the evidences in the day-in, day-out life of your faith in Jesus Christ because the Spirit of God that is in you, that is the evidence of your faith, is quenched. And with that, I've already given away the plot. The Spirit of God is the evidence that you are in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. What does that mean and where does that come from? How is it that old things pass away and all things become new when we are in Christ? And the answer to that is because he has given us of his spirit. 
First passage I'll have you turn to is Romans chapter 8, verse 15. Not used to slowing my roll. I have them here. I could read them, but I want you to see these. In Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16, the Bible says this. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And then, of course, he says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And so we have this reality, this, this understanding that the Spirit of God bears witness that we are the children of God. The Spirit of God witnesses to our spirit, and what he witnesses to our spirit is that we are the children of God. Continue then, looking in verses 22 and 23. Paul writes, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our bodies. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? So the idea here is that the Spirit of God is the first fruits, the first fruits of the Spirit. And we are groaning within ourselves, waiting for the fullness. The fullness is that adoption. Adoption is a future event. Our spirit groans within us, waiting for the adoption, which is the redemption of our bodies. That's the resurrection. And so the Bible tells us that the Spirit of God is there as the first fruits of all that we have in Christ. It is the means by which, Romans chapter 6 says, we are buried with Him by baptism into death. We're raised to walk in newness of life. We are given the Spirit of God. Therefore, we are able to live in the reality of the, of, of the Spirit of God, of, of the principles of God's Word, and the fruit of, of abiding in Christ. While we wait for the day when our bodies, which are still very much so connected to the flesh and connected to sin because they're still sinful bodies, we're waiting for the day when those bodies will be redeemed and we will be resurrected into sinless bodies, spiritual bodies fitted for a spiritual existence, whereby we will be separated from the presence of sin and from the presence of temptation. But until that day, the Spirit of God is that one that is in us, that testifies of the adoption, and that gives us that assurance that witnesses to our spirit that we are the children of God. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, we see a very similar idea, now not Paul, but Peter writing. You're there in First Peter 1, look with me in verses 3 through 5. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Paul said adoption is a future event. We are adopted today, if you will, on credit. Our ticket is purchased and it is punched and it is ready to go and we are packing our bags and we're simply waiting for the time to come. Well, Peter says the same thing about salvation. He says here in the text that our salvation is a future event. 
ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, we call ourselves saved, and yet we see that salvation is future. How is it that we call ourselves saved if our salvation is yet future? Well, because in the moment that you were given the Spirit of God, He testified to your heart that you are the child of God. He is the Spirit, the first fruits, which thus is the... the um, um, what word am I looking for? The earnest. There it is. The earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. As the earnest of our inheritance, he is the down payment. He is the thing that God has given to us to promise us, to assure us that the rest is yet to come. Skip with me there in 1 Peter 1, if you're still there, to verse 8. Whom having not seen, ye love. In whom, though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. The end of your faith is the salvation of your souls. A salvation that is not yet manifest, but is reserved in heaven for us. An inheritance which is reserved in heaven for us, that is incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away. And we know it's there. How? We know we have it. How? We know we have it because we have the earnest of the Spirit of God who testifies to our hearts, who witnesses to our hearts that we are the children of God. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 says, Now he which establisheth us with you is Christ, and hath anointed us, and he, and hath anointed us is God, who also hath sealed us, and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. We have been given the earnest, the down payment of the Spirit. Not, not, not a portion of the Spirit, but rather the Spirit is the portion. The Spirit is the earnest in our hearts, whereby we are sealed. We are, we are, we are locked into salvation, and we know that because of the presence of the Spirit of God in our hearts. 2 Corinthians 5, 4 and 5. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. We in this body do not groan to be dead. We groan to graduate into a a more full life, right? We do not groan to be unclothed of our bodies, but rather we groan to be clothed by a spiritual body that is the fullness of everything that God has promised. Verse 5, Now he that, wrought, that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who hath also given us the earnest of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is He who assures us that we are in Christ, that we have that down payment, that we are going to heaven. And when we see the, the reality, the evidences, the manifestations of the Spirit of God in our lives, that assures us every day that we see them, that we are in Christ. Now, here's the problem. As I said, there are people in here that they're trusting a memory, they're trusting a date, they're trusting those things. But there's something else that God's people do. You struggle with sin. And you're struggling with sin and you say, there's no way I could be a believer because of this sin in my life. Well, let me tell you this. One of the five, of, of the five evidences that I'm going to show you today, the manifestations of the Spirit, one of them is not sinlessness. And you say, well, pastor, how could I possibly still struggle with sin if I'm a believer? How can you possibly not? You're in this body of flesh. 
Now, as I had to say a couple of weeks ago, I say again today, I'm not trying to give you an excuse to sin. You're going to see that as we walk through this. There is no excuse to sin. But you will struggle with sin. You will struggle against this body of flesh until the day that you die and you are clothed upon with eternal life. So let's not make that an evidence of our salvation because that's not one. However, the way we relate ourselves to sin is. So let's walk through these today. At salvation, we are given the Spirit of God, and Paul expresses that the ministry of the Spirit of God in our hearts is the thing which we know has assured us of our salvation, by which we know we are destined unto that salvation, that adoption that is yet to come. So what are these five things? One more time, I remind you, the absence of these things does not necessarily mean you are not saved. The absence of these things means there is something spiritually wrong in your life. There's something wrong if you do not see these evidences. That thing wrong may not necessarily be that you're not saved, though. It may be that you are living in a a manner of sinfulness that is quenching or grieving the Spirit of God by which you are not able to see the manifestations of the Spirit of God at any given time. The presence of these things does, however, testify to the reality of the Spirit of God in our lives. So let's talk about them. The first one is illumination. Illumination. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to... uh, Actually, I'm going to have you turn to 1 John chapter 2. You turn to 1 John chapter 2, and I am going to uh, begin in John 14. In 1 John 2... Excuse me, not in 1 John 2. You're in 1 John 2. In John 14... Jesus, as he's speaking to his disciples, says this. He says, These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, Neither let it be afraid. So Jesus there in John 14 tells his disciples that there was coming a day when the Comforter would come. Throughout John, Jesus connects this name Comforter specifically whatsoever Jesus had said unto them. So we see this promise to the disciples and we say, well, yeah, he he gave that promise to the disciples and yet uh, Jesus never taught us. So how could he bring us to remembrance of the things Jesus taught us when Jesus has not taught us? Obviously, that's a very literal rendering of this. If we draw back once and we say that the the word of God is the words of uh, the very words of God. And so this is these are the words of Jesus Christ through the prophets, through the apostles and through the words of Christ himself. uh, Then we apply it in that way. But first, John, doesn't have that problem. John is writing in 1 John to a group of people, and there's certainly no assurance that all of those people had seen the risen Lord, that all of those people had been taught by the risen Lord. And yet in 1 John 2, you're there, verses 26 and 27, notice what the Bible says. John says, these things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. So John is a book, uh, 1 John is a book that is contending against false teaching, 
And so John says he's speaking of those that, that would seek to seduce the Christian. And he says that though they would seek to seduce the Christian, if we are abiding in Christ, then the anointing that we have received, that anointing is the Holy Spirit of God, then the anointing that which we, which we have received of Christ is abiding in us. If we are abiding in Christ, and we'll talk more about that in our final point, if we are abiding in Christ, if we are abiding and walking in the Spirit then the Spirit of God is working in our lives. And as the Spirit of God works in our lives, He will testify to us of truth. Have you ever sat under a preacher or read a book? And as you're reading that book or sitting under the preaching of that preacher, if I may describe it this way, it's the only way I can describe it. It is as if your heart was burning within you. And maybe it's something you heard that you'd never heard before. Maybe it was a take on scripture or an angle on scripture that you'd never quite connected to before. But as the preacher spoke of it or as you read it in the book, there was something in you that said, this is true. It connected the dots between lots of scriptures. It made so much sense biblically and spiritually. And and you said, yes, this is true. That's the spirit of God testifying to you of these things. There's a couple of authors that I've read in the past who have done that. Not, not very many, but just a couple. Whereas I've read their books, the Spirit of God has said, this, this, this is what you need. This is true. This is right. This is good. And this is something to, to found your thinking upon. And so this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives to illumine our hearts to the Scriptures, to allow us to understand Scriptures, but not just to testify of truth in that way. Notice what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2. Turn there if you would with me. First Corinthians 2, verses 11 through 15. I'm going to go back a few verses, actually. Verse 7. Paul says, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Uh, Paul is not saying there that that the Christian truths are Gnostic truths, secret knowledge that is only accessible to a few, but it is only accessible to those who have faith. And the princes of this world being self-glorifying, being vain, being narcissistic, and being power hungry cannot know these truths. And that's exactly where Paul is going with this as we continue in verse 9. But as, but as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. It is by the Spirit that God has revealed his truths to us. It is not you being smart. It is not you being clever. It is not you having special insight. It is the Spirit of God who has testified truth to you. Verse 11. For what man knoweth the things of man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? 
but we have the mind of Christ. So we see this idea that the spiritual man, that the man who is in the spirit, again, not necessarily meaning the unbeliever versus the believer, but the unbeliever does not have the spirit. Now, Jesus did tell us in John 16 that the unbeliever can know that the spirit of God does illuminate into the hearts of the unbeliever certain truths, but only certain truths. Go there with me into John 16. Jesus is once again talking about the comforter. And if you're there in John 16, look with me in verses 6 and 7. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. John 14 already told us that the comforter is the Holy Ghost. And when he has come, he will reprove. That word reprove there, that word reprove there meaning to convict, to bring to light, or to correct. Will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And so the idea here is that the world is convicted, the world is illuminated unto three truths. Truth number one, of sin because they believe not on me. The first thing that the Spirit of God illuminates every person in the world to that would hear the gospel, right? Because how can they hear without a preacher? Is that they have not believed on Jesus, therefore they are in sin. John uh, 3.18 says, He that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The sin which separates a man eternally from God is the sin of unbelief in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So they are convicted of this sin. Of sin, second, of righteousness. Jesus says in verse 10, Because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. That Jesus has died, been resurrected and ascends into the Father proves that he has been approved of God and therefore he is righteous, which means they have not believed, therefore they are in sin. And Jesus Christ is the righteous one who has done for them what they cannot do for themselves. And then finally, verse 11, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. The prince of this world is judged and all who follow the prince of this world in unbelief will be judged. And if you don't want to be judged, then you identify Christ as righteous, you as unrighteous, and you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, and in doing so, you are saved from the judgment that the prince of this world is subjected to, and you instead will walk in newness of life, unto eternal life. That is the only thing the scriptures tell us that the unbeliever is truly illumined to, with a notable exception that I'm not going to get into today. And that's the false teacher. Read about that in 2 Peter 2 and in Jude where the Bible says that these false men have tasted of the heavenly gift and they have seen these deeper truths, the Spirit of God illuminating these things unto them. And these false teachers are they who, having understood these things, not only refuse to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but when they see them, they they in their carnality see them as an opportunity actually to monetize those who do believe. The Spirit of God weighed heavy on their hearts the realities of the Word of God. And when He weighed on their hearts the realities of the Word of God, they did not just reject, as many men will do throughout their lives, but they said, now that I know these things, even though I don't believe them, I am going to live, I'm going to teach false truths. I'm going to take these and I'm going to, word iniquity, bend them or twist them in such a way so as to Fleece the flock of God. And that's the warning in 2 Peter 2 and Jude. 
And so we find this first evidence. Pastor, how do I know that I'm saved? Well, do you have the Spirit of God? If you have the Spirit of God, you're saved. You've been sealed. Well, how do I know that I have been sealed? How do I know that the Spirit of God is in me? Evidence number one. He illuminates Scripture. You understand the spiritual things. Maybe every week you sit under my preaching and you just say, you know, I just don't understand this stuff. It just doesn't make any sense to me. It's like a foreign language. It's not good. There's something spiritually wrong. Now, again, it doesn't mean you're an unbeliever. Maybe you are grieving and quenching the Spirit of God. Maybe you are walking in darkness and you are unrepentant in that. And through your unrepentant heart, you are resting in darkness. And so none of this makes sense. None of this rings true to you because the Spirit of God is not able to minister the truths of them to your heart because you've grieved Him. But one way or another, if the Scriptures do not make sense to you, if they are not illuminated to you, if you do not understand the spiritual... I'm not saying you understand everything in the scriptures. It's a big book and there's a lot to understand. But when they are explained to you, when there is opportunity, the, 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 the foundational truths of the Christian life, these things, if these things abound in you, if you recognize them and understand them, if you have a proper orientation to them, this is a good sign that you are in Christ because the Spirit of God has illuminated truth to you. So number one, illumination. Only those who are enlightened by the Spirit of God, illuminated by the Spirit of God, understand the spiritual things. The carnal mind, the carnal man cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Only the Spirit can discern the things of God. Second, the second evidence, and this is the one, this is the unique one. This is the one that even if you're quenching or grieving the Spirit of God, you ought to see in your life. To that extent, I guess this would be the preeminent one, in a sense. The second evidence that you are saved, that you have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling you, is conviction and chastening. I talked already about this idea of the Spirit burning within us when we hear the truths of God's Word in a way that resonates with us so that we understand this is truth. Uh, that echoing in our hearts that, that, that says this is right and this is true and this orients properly. And what that is, it's, it's not that I've got, if, if, you've ever, if, if you've ever experienced that with me, it's not that, that I have special words. It's not my special charisma. If you've read it in a book, it's not that those words were so particularly and u- uniquely put together. No, that burning in your heart, that, that recognition, that, that drawing of your heart, that's the Spirit of God as He illuminates the Scriptures and he, he connects them to other truths in your life. But then there are also these times where, maybe even apart necessarily from the Word of God directly, you sin. And when you sin, there's this burden on your heart. It's very similar to what we read about in John 16 just then. The idea that the Spirit of God would come and He would convince or convict, reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. They feel a burden on their hearts. And we've talked about the difference before uh, of, uh, between guilt and shame and the very carnal ideas of guilt and shame versus conviction. But what we talk about today is conviction. Conviction is when you feel a burden upon your heart for your sin and it draws you to come to Christ to be forgiven in the vein of 1 John 
Chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that is the fruit of conviction in our hearts that we feel this draw, this weight of heaviness of sin that draws us unto Christ. Guilt and shame will not do that. Guilt and shame will not draw you unto Christ. Guilt and shame will do that thing that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden, that when they ate of the fruit, they saw that they were naked and they went and they, hit, they clothed themselves. And then when they heard Jesus's voice, when they heard the voice of, of God walking, I believe it would be the second person of the Trinity, hence why I called it him Jesus there. When he heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden, they hid themselves because they were naked. The shame and the guilt of that sin did not draw them back to God. It, it caused them to hide from God. If you're experiencing guilt, if you're experiencing shame, if you're experiencing the kind of frustration in your heart, a weight in your heart that says, run away from the church, run away from God's people, run away from God, run away from God's word, run away from prayer, that is not from God because that is not how God works and that's not how conviction works. Conviction happens when I feel it's that, it, it's that weight, it's that weight of sin, it's that weight of failure, it's that weight of, uh, of, of falling short of God and it is that weight of rebellion, it's that weight of, 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 of we have made a choice to do that which was wrong before God, but what it does is it calls me back to Him. That's conviction. Now in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, we read something very interesting. You can turn there with me. And this is the passage whereby we, we see this standard. We saw from 1 John, we saw from, from John 14, we saw from 1 Corinthians 2 that the Bible teaches that the Spirit of God in the hearts of, of those who are walking with Christ will illuminate them. Where does the Bible teach that the Spirit of God will convince or convict and chasten us? And that's Hebrews 12. If you're there, beginning in verse 4, Paul writes this, "'Ye have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin.'" He says here, you've not yet died in your struggle against sin. Your struggle against sin hasn't killed you yet. And the idea here is, so keep, keep trying. Keep walking. As we would see in verse 1, lay aside the weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Notice Paul says there that the sins that we have easily beset us. Christian, it is not a good standard for you to say, do I sin? Well, then I must not be a believer. It doesn't work that way. Sin is so, it's too easy to be beset by sin for that to be the standard. But what happens when you sin? That's where we can start to see a standard. Verse 5, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, my son, Despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. That word bastard there, of course, being a word that nowadays has taken the form of a swear word, but effectively simply means an illegitimate child. One who claims to be a son, but is not 
actually a son, hence why it used to be so um, insulting and then thus became a swear word because you were calling someone an illegitimate child, which implied that uh, there was adultery in your family. And of course, there was a time where adultery was actually seen as a bad thing. And so being an illegitimate child would have been something that would have been deeply uh, insulting to the moral sensibilities of any person within a culture. That's not necessarily the case anymore, but that's beside the point. The point is this. Paul says that when we sin or when we fall short, God scourges us because he loves us. Now, the idea of chastening does not only imply punishment. And I use that word punishment. It's not really punishment anyway. There's a difference. But the idea of chastening does not always imply that someone did something wrong. Chastening is simply the word for training. And indeed, sometimes that training can happen uh, not just because we've done something wrong, maybe even because we've done something right. As I start to see my son get bigger and get stronger and he's doing well and he's responsible and I might tell my son, son, go out and chop that whole pile of, uh, of logs. Split them for me so that we can use them in the winter. Now, he's going to be out there and it's not going to feel good. And I'm going to tell him, you have a time limit. You have to get them done before the end of the week. So he's going to have to work real hard. And he's going to be out there and he's not going to be happy because his muscles are burning, but he's got to get done in time. And he's not going to be happy with me, perhaps, because it's not something that he's enjoying. And yet, what am I doing? Did I do that because I don't like him? Did I do that because I want to punish him? No, I did that because I see that he's becoming a fine, strong, responsible young man, and I want to help him along in the process. So I'm going to help him build his muscles. I'm going to help him learn. I'm even going to allow him to fail so that he can learn to pick himself up and try again. And that's a part of the chastening process as well. And yet here we do see within the context that it is striving against sin. In this context, it is about the idea that we fall and we falter. And when we falter, the Lord chastens us. And he does so in love for us, for who, what, what son is he of whom his father chasteneth not? If our father does not chasten us when we sin, if we are not under conviction when we sin, if we are not drawn back to God, and if we refuse to run back to God, if we are persisting in our sin, if we are persisting in our rebellion, if we are sitting in that place of rejection of God's authorities, in rejection of God's word, in rejection of God's way, then we should expect God to resist us. We should expect God to scourge us. And so we read in verse 11, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Chastening is intended to draw you back to the Lord, to lead you into the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And this is the one that you ought to see whether you're right with God or not. We call it testings or trials when we're right with God, and we call it chastening when we're not right with God. But one way or the other, you ought to expect God to be stretching you. What did we talk about already in John 15? I didn't take you there. I was just quoting it. Jesus says, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. That's chastening. He's not talking about losing salvation there. He's talking about losing abiding status, at which point then you're chastened. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it that it may bring forth more fruit. You want your trees to grow big and strong? You want your fruit fruit trees to grow? You got to prune them back. You cut off a lot of healthy branch. You prune back a lot of healthy 
plant to get it to the place where it can then grow back fuller and stronger. Or at least that's what I've heard. I, I've got a brown thumb, so I don't know. God will chasten his own. And if you don't see it, Christian, you should really, really be concerned. If you're not seeing God test you, try you, if when you have stepped outside of God's way, if when you're walking contrary to God's word, you do not see God's chastening hand, that should concern you. Because when we see God's chastening of hand, it's chastening hand, it's no fun. It's not enjoyable. No chastening for the moment. Seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. But we know that it is unto this end that it works the peaceable fruit of righteousness in us. And by the way, it also reminds you that you are a child of God and you're not an illegitimate child. You're not a false professor. So how do we know that we're in Christ? First, the Spirit of God's illumination. It's all about the Spirit of God. First, the Spirit of God's illumination. Second, chastening conviction through the Spirit of God. Third, love of the brethren. And I give a caveat here, another one, before we go into this. We're going to be talking a lot in these next few points in 1 John. I've preached an entire series on 1 John. I encourage you to go back and listen to it if you need more details. But the fact of the matter is this. 1 John is not a book about who is and who is not saved. Many people believe that 1 John is a book about who is and who is not saved. And if you go into that book thinking that it's about who is and who is not saved, you're going to walk away saying, I'm not saved. Because it's talking about things like, if you sin, then you're not in Christ. Uh Uh-oh, I sin. If you don't love the brethren, then you're not in Christ. Uh-oh. I'm struggling about, I'm struggling with, with some of my brethren. But that's not the point. First John is not a book on how to be saved. It's a book on how to know that you are abiding in Christ. How to abide in Christ. Struggling to love the brethren or enjoying sin for a season does not mean you are not saved. It means you aren't spiritually right. It may mean you're not saved or it may mean that you're not abiding. Whether you desire sin, whether your desire for sin is because you are not saved or because you're grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit of God, the objective of 1 John is to assess whether you are abiding in Christ, not whether you are saved. But nevertheless, the ministry of the Spirit of God in our hearts to love righteousness is given only to those who are in the Spirit. And even among those who enjoy their sin, Among believers, this enjoyment is accompanied by what we already talked about, conviction, chastening, and the frustration of the believer who knows that what he is doing is wrong, even if they are enjoying it nevertheless. The most miserable person in the world is not the unbeliever. The most miserable person in the world is the believer walking contrary to the truths of God's word. And it's the same with loving the brethren. Not liking people is one thing, but the believer will gravitate Nevertheless, toward those who are of the faith. This is a connection among spirit-filled believers, even spanning languages and cultures. So let's get into these. Uh, Proof number one, illumination of the Holy Spirit. Proof number two, chastening and conviction through the Holy Spirit. Proof number three, love of the brethren. You go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter five. I'm going to begin in John 13. In Galatians uh, chapter 5 there, we'll come there in a moment, we see an exhortation. But in John 13, 35, Jesus gives this very simply. He says this, he says, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. 
Now let's take a look at Galatians 5. Verse 13, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. That means one saying, not just one physical word. Even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Notice the connection between loving others, loving thy neighbor as thyself, and walking in the spirit. We'll come back to walking in the spirit in our final point. But Paul says here, all the laws fulfilled in one word, and this is the fulfillment that takes place when we're walking in the Spirit, love thy neighbor as thyself. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, John writes, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whoso hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. You say, Pastor, that sounds like they're not saved. No. Notice the word abiding there. Abideth in death. Eternal life is not abiding in him. It does not mean that it's not present. It means it's not abiding. It means he's not living in it. Again, go back to 1 John if you need more context to, 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 to this argument here. We know that Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We know that Romans 6 is written to believers. It's not written to unbelievers. It's not written about unbelievers. It's written about believers. Believers can abide in death or believers can abide in life. We can have life. And if we have life, we no longer have death, as in we are no longer on our way to hell, but you can still abide in death. Death being separation from fellowship with God through your sin. If you're not living in love of the brethren, here's what you can know. You're abiding in death and not life. You are living out the reality of that concept of murderer. This is the same idea that James exhorts. When he says that you... I better go there. This is one that I used to have memorized well, but... um, Maybe not so much anymore, or at least it's not coming to my mind at the moment. James asks in James 4, verse 1, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lusts. When he says there that we fight and we war, where, where do wars and fightings come among us? And then he says that ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have. He's not talking geopolitics here. He's writing to a group of believers and he says there's wars and fightings among you. You are killing each other. Does that mean that they're murdering each other in the physical? No. It means that they are hating their brothers, therefore they have murdered them already. That great Sermon on the Mount principle that if you hate a brother in your heart, you've committed murder against him already. This is the idea of Galatians. And excuse me, of 1 John 3. That's 1 John 3 verses 14 and 15. To this end, Christian, if you do not love other Christians, if you have no draw to be among God's people, If when you walk into a rightly oriented spiritual body, whether that be just friends uh, uh, who have come together, who are all believers or or into a spirit-filled church, if you do not feel that communion, there's something terribly wrong. You are abiding in death. Does that mean you're an unbeliever? No, it doesn't. Maybe. You may be an unbeliever. Or it may very well be that you're just abiding in death. You're severed from the vine. 
One way or another, there's something spiritually wrong because an evidence of the Spirit of God in our lives is that we love the brethren. Next one, we must hasten on. Number four. First, the Spirit of God illuminates us to truth, illuminates us to the things of the Spirit. Second, conviction and chastening among those who are God's own. Third, a love for the brethren. Fourth, a love for righteousness. Go ahead and turn with me into 1 John. We're going to walk through a few passages together. Perhaps you already turned there. 1 John chapter 2 is where we'll start. And then we'll go to 3 and then we'll go to 5. 1 John chapter 2 verse 3 says this, And hereby do we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. Notice it doesn't say hereby we know Him if we keep His commandments. It says hereby we know that we know Him. How can you have confidence that you're in him? Well, because you keep his commandments. Pastor, we've already talked about this. I'm a sinner. Yep, yep. And then what happens when you sin? Does God chasten you? Okay, good. And then what do you do? He chastens you. You recognize you're in sin. You confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. You're cleansed from all unrighteousness. You're restored to fellowship with God. And then you keep his commandments, right? Until the next time. You desire to keep his commandments. We'll talk more about that in a moment. He that saith, verse 4, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. You're not living in the truth if you say you know him and you're not keeping his commandments, but that doesn't mean you're an unbeliever. It simply means you're not abiding in truth. There's something spiritually wrong with you then. Go to 1 John 3, verses 1 through 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. That's the redemption of the purchased possession. We don't know that yet. But we know this, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. If we recognize that Jesus is coming for us one day, if we recognize that we are going to be like him one day, then there is something that is within the heart of the believer that says, I know that one day he's going to come for me and he is going to redeem me from this body of sin and he is going to make me a new creator. Uh, he is going to, to make me a new body by which I will no longer even be tempted to sin. I will no longer be in the presence of sin, but there's a yearning in my heart to live that way for him today. That's a good sign. Christian, that means that you have the Spirit of God in you because you're yearning to be like the one who has redeemed you. One more, 1 John 5, verse 3. I think this is the clearest one. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. The love of God that is given to me by the Spirit of God when I am born again draws me not just to desire to keep his commandments, to make it right when I don't, but to recognize that his commandments are for my good and thus to love the truth. Maybe you're not doing a very good job of living in the truth and you're very regularly on your knees confessing your sins before God and you are frustrated and you struggle and if you're really struggling, come, come talk to me and we can, we can start helping you work through that. But... You yearn, nevertheless, to be free from that sin. You yearn to walk the way Jesus walked. You yearn to be right with him and you yearn to be righteous. That's a good sign. All right, final one. And by the way, we talked already a couple weeks ago. 
Only by the Spirit are we empowered to keep God's commandments, right? It's that connection between faith and works that we talked about last week in James. Faith will produce works. So as I live in faith, it is God who wills in me both, uh, it is God who works in me both to will and to do of his good pleasure, right? It is by the grace of God that we are what we are. Grace from beginning to end, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. And so as we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous, we're keeping his commandments not intrinsically because we're saved, but because we are abiding in Christ. And that brings us naturally to our final point. How do I know I'm saved? First, illumination of the Holy Spirit. Second, conviction and chastening of the Holy Spirit. Third, the Holy Spirit draws me to other spirit, Spirit-filled people. I love the brethren. Fourth, the Holy Spirit draws me unto a love of righteousness and a desire to live in righteousness and a capacity to live in righteousness, to obey God's commands. And that all happens through number five, the fruit of the Spirit. Turn with me one final time to Galatians 5. Galatians 5, verses 16 to the end of the chapter, the Bible says this. We have already read verses uh, 13 to 16, right? 16 says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to another. The lusts of the flesh are contrary to the Spirit, and the lusts of the Spirit, in other words, the desires of the Spirit, are contrary to the flesh. When you're loving the brethren, when you're loving righteousness, these things are contrary to the flesh in you. And when you desire the works of the flesh, this is contrary to the Spirit in you. There's a war happening, but that war is only happening in believers because the unbeliever doesn't have the Spirit of God. There is no war. Now, they might be in a war of guilt. They might be in a war of shame. They might be in a a, a war of, of morality. They might be in a war of discipline. All of those things are possible, but I guarantee you this, they are not in a war of the Spirit because they don't have the Spirit. Verse 18, but if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Not a comprehensive list here, Christian. Of the which I tell you before... As I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Those that are defined by such things, those who the flesh is the very definition of who they are because they don't have the spirit. See, when you accept Jesus Christ as your savior, you're made a new creation. You are given a new name. You are no longer defined by your sin. Even as you sin, you are now defined by Christ's righteousness. But they that live in these things, they that do such things, they that are defined by such things, they will not have the kingdom of God. And even we who are in the spirit, as we walk in them, we lose inheritance in the kingdom of God. It does not mean that we don't have the kingdom of God. It does not mean we will not step into the kingdom of God. We will be saved, but we will lose reward. But the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22 says, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Notice this is not something that you conjure up in yourself. You Follow Christ. You abide in Christ. You walk in the Spirit. You submit yourself to the Spirit. You walk by faith, and the Spirit of God 
produces these things in you. Christian, it is not your job to produce righteousness in yourself. Yeah, but I'm a believer. I'm supposed to live righteous. Yes, you're supposed to follow Christ and let him do the work in you. Let him do it. And this is what you'll see. And as you see those things produced in your life, have you ever been there? You've been in a situation where it's conflict, it's evil, it's wrong, it's difficulty. And everything that is within you would naturally, you would fight, you would, you would fight back, you would be angry, you would be, you, you would be uh, whatever carnal, you, you, you would fall into adultery or lust. But instead, you lived above that. You walked on a different plane. You should be a wreck, but instead you have peace and joy in your heart. You should have been angry, but instead you exercised temperance and meekness. You should have just jumped down someone's throat, but instead you were long-suffering. And you say, where did that come from? That's a good sign. You say, that wasn't me. That was someone else. There is a, you feel a grace. You feel a sustaining. You feel an empowerment in the difficult times. You feel an empowerment when otherwise you would naturally turn to some sinful response. And instead, something within you turned you to a righteous, a virtuous response. That's a good sign. And so it is that the fruit of the Spirit is that which the Spirit of God does in the lives of those who have Him. And those that have Him are those who are the children of God. Because it is the Spirit of God that witnesses to our spirit that we are the children of God. How do you know that you are a believer? Doesn't You don't have to have a, a date written in your Bible. You don't have to have a certificate on your wall. You don't need your parents to assure you of the fact. And thank God you don't need to rely upon a feeble and unreliable memory to know. You should be able to look at where you are right this moment. What's happening in your heart, in your mind, in your actions right this moment and validate whether or not you are on your way to heaven. Because you see the manifestations of the Spirit of God within you. This word, the Spirit of God illuminating your heart to the truths of God's Word. The Spirit of God convicting and, and chastening you for sin when you're walking in a sinful state. The Spirit of God drawing you to other believers, like-minded and spiritual believers. The Spirit of God drawing you to a love of and a desire for righteousness and an empowerment to obey the commandments of God by producing in you those nine fruit of the Spirit against which there is no law, so that you are exercising love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance, not because you finally disciplined yourself into expressing some of these virtues in a way that our culture can understand, but because the Spirit of God works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And so as you sit there today, perhaps you say, well, Pastor Wickler, you know what? I don't see any of those. I've never seen any of those. Well, then you're probably not a believer. Would you today confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God hath risen him from the dead? Would you today call upon the name of the Lord to be saved? Repenting of your dead works, setting aside anything and everything that you might be trusting in to get yourself to heaven and putting your faith in God alone through Jesus Christ alone, that he died on the cross to save you from your sins, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day. Would you call out to him to be saved? 
Or maybe you're sitting here today and you say, well, pastor, as I sit in this seat, I do not have that assurance. I cannot see it. Well, then there's something wrong. Maybe it's not that you're an unbeliever. Maybe you can look back in your life and you can see a time in your life where the Spirit of God was manifesting mightily in you. And you look back and you say, I know that was the Spirit of God. Then don't doubt that it was the Spirit of God. Start here. You don't have to, get re- you don't have to, to go through some sort of assurance of your salvation. You don't have to go and get rebaptized just yet. Start here. Start with repentance. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Ask God to show you where it is you're walking contrary to him. Get right with God, restore fellowship with God and see if the spirit of God does not start to enliven your spirit again. Now, if you've searched your heart, if you've tried your best, if you've sought to everything and it is still dead as a doornail, well, then you might need to come talk with me. We might need to start looking a little deeper. We might need to... Acknowledge the lack of, uh, of the Spirit of God and the lack of faith. And for everyone else, maybe today you see the Spirit of God. That's good. But there might come a hard time where it's as if the Spirit of God is not there for one reason or another. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you're confused. Maybe you're in sin. In that day, look to these evidences. Because these are the evidences that the Bible gives us that one is in Christ. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.